Welcome, everyone, to It Simply Isn't Done, the Sermon Recap Podcast. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport. And I am Reverend Barry Petrucci. We are the pastors at Chapel Hill Church. And together we are the, the Irreverent Reverends. And uh, like the name would suggest, this podcast is the message from Sunday, where we share the scripture and then the sermon, and uh, we meet you back for some reflection on that message. There will be an opportunity to, if you look down in the notes, you will see a place where you can go directly to the reflection if you already listened to the scripture uh, on the sermon, or if you just want to skip them all together and uh, just hear what we have to think about it, um, you can go there. We're happy you're here. We are indeed. We are recapping Lent 2 in the Unhurried series. Unhurried. So this is going to be a really long podcast because we are going to be unhurried. Wow. Lucky for you, dear listener. (laughs) The scripture was Psalm 23. Um, The title of the message was A Place at the Table I Preached This Week. And if you've already heard the scripture and the message, you can catch us for some reflection. You can look at the mark in the show notes. Skim ahead. Mm -hmm. What was your word? Scoodle. Scoodle. I said you could scoodle on ahead in a previous recording. Scoodle. Um, but now we're going to make it a thing. So scoodle on ahead if you've heard it. Isn't scoodle a piece of furniture in Ikea? Probably. It's not a word, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly it not a word. It is now. Mm. Anyway, we'll see you in a little while. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. A word of God that is still speaking. Pray with me. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is week two of Lent and our unhurried series. Last week, Barry introduced the series to us, and we talked about finding the right tempo, taking on Jesus' yoke, and walking and working with him. This week, our scripture, we have another pastoral landscape to view and more agricultural metaphors. But before I dive in, I want to give you the why behind this series. 
Oftentimes in Lent, we are asked to intensely fast or to take on something for 40 days up until Easter, right, minus the Sundays. Even when we chose the series back in July, we had the sense collectively we did not need an intense time of fasting, but rather an invitation into a new way of being that we could sustain beyond Lent. Growing up, my dad would say, you can do anything for a finite period of time, and we can, and sometimes we need to. But for this season in our lives, we sensed we needed something slower that we could build on and not abandon come Easter. Unhurried. A life with God that is unhurried. And there are some things you might notice about how we've set up the space or structured the service to kind of get us into that unhurried space. So this represents, ooh, dusk or dawn. It's an ombre. Dusk or dawn is not hurried. It simply happens. And how lucky are we when we get to watch it unfold in front of us? We have scenes of spaces where we tend to feel unhurried. Right? Places we might go here in Michigan where we don't feel like we need to rush through. We can sit and we can look at Lake Michigan. We can sit, we can look at pictured rocks. We have, we have water. A lot of times if you're hanging out by a stream, hopefully you don't feel particularly rushed. We have that running throughout. Listen, y'all had to hear or see the scripture twice. Twice, ooh, whoa. We're getting wild. I'm not gonna call anyone out, but there was someone on our worship team that was like, mm, twice, really? Can we just pick one? No, it's okay. We can be unhurried. We can take it in. We can see what might stick out to us when we hear Joy read it or when we see it. Unhurried. Our faith as unhurried. For some of us, that seems counterintuitive. You could really go on any highway and you would see a billboard that says, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? <laughs> Ooh, right? Many expressions of Christianity have this kind of jarring urgency built into them. And I would invite us, because there are many expressions of Christianity, not just one, there are many, I would invite us here to take a breath and I want to offer a little perspective because I'm skeptical of that kind of urgency. I don't see Jesus speaking in terms that are that urgent. I mean, the man was often simply asked a yes or no question, and he answered in long, meandering stories for people to ponder. There's nothing urgent about that. He sat. He ate with people, he stayed in their homes, he spent time with them. I don't think our God is saying, you better make a quick decision, behave this way quickly or else. I think humans might have added that element to our faith practice. Let's look at the Psalm. For many of us, it's calming. It's set in nature. Many of us find that nature calms us, not everyone, right? But if that's you, let's think about that for a minute. What does it say to you if you're someone calmed in nature, a place that takes its own time, that is unhurried? When and if conditions are right, flowers will bloom. 
They are not early. They are not late. Those concepts do not exist to the flower. They are always right on time when conditions are right, unhurried. I love that we find such comfort in this poem, the song, because it also doesn't say, well, a walk with God will be a walk in the park, it'll be easy. We know that's not true. And the psalm acknowledges God's presence in the dark times, in the valleys of our life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. This psalm is about presence, deep abiding presence, attunement, attention. Let's talk about presence for a moment. Think about most of your days when you're awake. What percentage of your day are you fully present to someone or something? Mostly present, even. What do you wish that percentage was? And what keeps us from being present? Sometimes it's a literal distraction, literally something in front of us that's demanding our attention. And other times our brains are just preoccupied. And I'm kind of working this out and I think it's right for me. And I've learned if it's right for me, I would venture it might be right for others because I am not that unique. But I think that worry is really the opposite of presence. Worry, a preoccupation regarding something that might happen, could happen, general unease we might have about a situation. It's dwelling on something that is not reality. It's usually negative, right? It's not daydreaming. Unease, dis-ease. And if we dwell there, we cannot dwell here or here. I've been thinking about a good metaphor for worry and wouldn't you know it, one came to me. Friends, I am learning to drive manual transmission vehicles for the first time. Uh, Barry and myself are going to join thousands of our colleagues at the Festival of Homiletics. Whoa, <laughs> we know how to have a good time. And we're also carpooling in his car, a manual. Right now, right, my mother-in-law, she is in Nigeria, she is teaching, she's having a great time. We were like, oh, we can sell our car, we can save up for a new car, we can use her car. Guess what it is? A manual. The time has come for me to learn, and it's been a lot. So I do this thing where I ride the gas pedal. I am giving the car fuel way too often, way too early. The car cannot move forward. I'm shifting, I'm doing something else, and I'm giving it gas, and I do so so quickly, I get scared, take all my feet off the pedals, and I stall out. If you happen to be at the Dairy Queen on Thursday afternoon, you saw this through the drive-through. <laughs> Happened multiple times. It was really hard to enjoy my shake after that experience. <laughs> I think worry is the same thing. When we are revving up and we just can't go anywhere, it is unavailable to us. The car cannot move forward, yet we are giving it fuel. 
it serves no purpose. And it just expends energy, right? Mine, the cars, the poor person teaching me. Worry doesn't change outcomes. And I'm saying this as a clinically anxious person. <laughs> Sometimes my brain needs to ponder scenarios in order to settle down, but generally worrying feeds fear and anxiety in times we have no control over outcomes. It is fuel to nowheresville. It robs us from being present. That's why therapists and somatic practitioners say, hey, if your mind is racing, try to come back to the present, right? Find three things that are red, right? Take five deep breaths, pet a cat, do some jumping jacks, do anything in your physical space to bring your awareness to the present. Stop dwelling elsewhere and figure out how to dwell here. And this isn't to bash those of us who are anxious and who worry. There is cause. Right? The world feels scary. And if we spend all of our time dwelling anywhere other than right here, we can't do what we were designed to do, which is love God and love neighbor right here and right now. That which we do have control over an outcome. The kind of love God designed us for takes presence. And that's why God models it through Jesus, through the psalm, through showing up in all kinds of forms and all kinds of ways throughout scripture and in our lives. Presence. I want to move to verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The word table here isn't just like a run-of-the-mill kitchen table. This Hebrew word is used frequently in conjunction with like royalty and heads of state. This is a big, long, fancy table. Also, this kind of table language, it's always used in situations where we need to note it's about hospitality. This kind of table is about hospitality. Dr. Andrew Atterbury really hones in on the idea of God's hospitality and it's ensuring at this table we have what we need to dwell here, to dwell here, to enjoy time, to be fed at the host's table, God's table. And as a little bit of an aside, I just want a reminder for us, um, this kind of hospitality was woman's work. So while we have lots of he's, and we understand shepherds are men in this psalm, um, the dressing of the table, the ensuring of hospitality, that was distinctly feminine, and God is described in that way. I always think it's worth noting whenever there are different gendered experiences of God we see in scripture because we tend to skip over them, and that's important. Our faith ancestors did not limit God to a particular gender. All right, back to our table. So the most traditional understanding of this text is that God makes a table for us and our enemies have to watch us eat and enjoy and have everything provided for us as they look upon us. And I want to mess with that a bit because it's fun. <laughs> Tradition is helpful and I think it's uh, deserving of our challenge at times. Especially in this text because I think that traditional understanding, right, from our Western particularly forefathers, really limits who God might be, and who God certainly calls us to be. 
Instead of God setting a table while your enemies look on, what if God is inviting us to break bread with those whom we despise? Ooh. What if this presence extends beyond just being gawked at while we enjoy food, ensuring the destruction and jealousy of our enemies? What if presence means dwelling with, engaging with, not agreeing with, not putting up with bad behavior, but breaking bread and spending time and challenging our own misconceptions with our enemies? That seems to be more in line with who I understand Christ to be. Granted, it's much harder. Listen, wouldn't I love to sit at a long table with my feet up eating Cheetos, the crunchy kind, while everyone who has wronged me has to look on? I, I don't know if I would actually like that. I just like the image of it. <laughs> right, that's how this has often been interpreted. And I just don't see God inviting us into spiteful revenge. I don't think that's what this is about. And here's the rub for us today. We live in 21st century America. Enemies look different, but probably not that different. Because I think a table in the presence of our enemies might just be a table for one, friends. The call is coming from inside the house. How often are we our own worst enemy? Reverend Rob McCoy, a colleague of ours, um, and he's actually from my former conference in Illinois, writes, what if the enemy is within? I've sat with myself on dark and lonely nights. What if the enemy is my own apathy? I've walked by pain and turned a blind eye to the suffering of my neighbor. What if the enemy is my own comfort? I've chosen to settle for the inertia of inaction over disrupting the status quo. What if the enemy is my own pride? I've avoided the one that hurt me. I've held on to bitterness even when the taste in my mouth was too much to bear. What if the enemy is my own fear? I've walked away from persecution and participated in unjust systems for fear of the wrath to be turned instead onto me. So Jesus, what then? You tell me to love my enemies. Am I to love my enemy when the enemy is looking back at me in the mirror? And friends, we know the answer. We've sat at that table before, and still God meets us there. I sit at the presence of my enemy and can only confess to God and myself the times I have fallen short. I sit with myself and have no choice but to forgive and also be forgiven. I sit at my table for one and am confronted with the profound absurdity of the gospel because there is still good news if you're sitting at a table for one. Dear ones, perhaps the person to be most present with is yourself. Perhaps all of our worrying is really a distraction from knowing who we are. I have preached umpteen times on knowing what we need. 
Because when we ask ourselves or when someone asks us the question, what do we need? What do you need? What do we say? I don't know. I don't need anything. And yet to be human is to have needs. It's hard. It's hard to know. And I think some of that is because we don't know ourselves at all. We, we define ourselves by everything around us that is external. Our worth is tied to our job, our grades, our productivity, our relationships, being a parent, being a grandparent, being a kid, being a boyfriend. And we worry about all of those things and none of these things. And then Jesus comes in to disrupt that with another one of his meandering stories and metaphors and says, consider the lilies of the field. They do not toil or spin. Surely you are worth more than these. Not because of what you do, not because of whom you're in relationship with, but simply because you are you. It's scary to figure out how to be present with those around you and yourself. But that's my ask of you this week. Figure out time and space to be present with you. Now that doesn't mean you have to be alone, although some of you might prefer that. But be attuned to your feelings, your experience, your needs. Prepare a table for one or more. Show that hospitality and grace to yourself and others. What is beautiful about this is that we will try this week and hopefully after, and we will fail sometimes and get it right sometimes. But we end this psalm with verse 6 reminding us that it really isn't about our efforts as much as it is about the character of God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. They will chase you. They will run after you wherever you go, near any stream, down any valley, even when we are our own worst enemy. God's goodness will find us in the end. And if it hasn't yet, beloveds, it simply is not the end. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are ready to go, and you have heard Psalm 23, and you have heard the message. Jess, what were you doing? What were you, what were you doing with Psalm 23? I mean, you know, it's, it's a tough one because it's like one of the most familiar texts. It's on virtually every the bulletin of every funeral that's ever been done. And... Yeah, well, that's a question I could take many ways. Um, what was I doing? <laughs> what, what were you attempting to? <laughs> what were you attempting to do that would be fodder for the congregation and beyond? So, I wanted us to look at it in the thought of unhurried and just kind of go through it a little bit um, and to think about it. And, and really set it up as a psalm about presence more than a psalm about comfort, which they can, they can both exist at one time. But the, for me, the psalm speaks a lot to presence. And given the series and kind of the direction we were given from Worship Design Studio, 
with Marsha McPhee. Um, a place at the table was kind of the the place to be present. So I wanted to kind of focus in on that and what might it mean uh, for God to make a place um, at a table for us to prepare a table in the presence of our enemies and to talk a little bit about what presence looks like there. That's yeah, and you, <laughs> you, you made the point that it was probably not about um, setting up this table where you could, you know, put your feet up and, and eat uh, crunchy Cheetos and and, uh, Someone did bring me a bag of crunchy Cheetos nice. yesterday, which was great. You see, that's like, the yeah. thing. You should you should preach for like product placement, whatever you yeah. want, whatever you want, <laughs> and, it'll, and it'll show up for you. Uh, but this idea that the the enemies were just kind of watching while you were enjoying a good meal wasn't really what that was about. It was mm-hmm. um, inviting inviting um, our presence with with enemies and the enemy's presence with us uh, at a shared table. Yeah, and that is certainly, I think, uh, a mainline Protestant contemporary understanding. But even looking back through antiquity, um, wow, people interpreted that as if your enemies would have to look at it. I was kind of surprised by how much of that I found. Um, Yeah, so just talking through what that might mean to actually be present with, to break bread with one's enemy. And, you know, this isn't a shock to anyone. We're so culturally divided we don't even want to be in space with someone that we think might have a diametrically opposed view from us um and i think that's harmful sometimes right sometimes your life might depend on it so like okay you know depending on your situation but i think sometimes too we forget that even here at this church there are people that have all sorts of theological political you know views um, and, and we come together around our understanding of Christ and wanting to be in community together. So I think an encouragement to figure out what that might look like, knowing that many of us don't have enemies in a traditional sense. Well, and, and I think it's a fair interpretation, given the unique quality of Psalm 23 vis-a-vis um, many other psalms where where there's all kinds of opportunities to uh, look at and think about a God who is a uh, warrior king leading leading, not, yeah. leading the people mm-hmm. into battle. And this mm-hmm. is a very different kind of uh, an invitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that presence could have very easily included a battle scene background mm-hmm. where it was clear that the enemy had no place at the table. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't do that. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't think it does. And I, yeah, I understand why people would interpret it that way. It's, it's very in line with our traditional reading, just in terms of what I think uh, the Spirit might be calling us to do today. I, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's to have this, this giant, violent backdrop of warrior enemy. Um, and, yeah, I tried to make that point with kind of table of one, and typically we're the ones who get in our way the most. We're the ones who are our real enemy um, for a whole host of reasons. The, uh, the enemy is us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if, so take that reading, because that was a point in the message where I was thinking that I really wanted you to go more into that, and time is what it is um, in a message. Was there anything related to that that you that you didn't say 
about about the enemy being you. Oh, being our own worst enemies, yeah. making a table for one. Oh, yeah. I mean, that could be that could have been a standalone sermon, right? I I cram multiple sermons yeah. into one often. Yeah. I, um, I hear you. Yeah. So. I think there's a lot we could individually reflect on about how we're our own worst enemies. Um, and I, I thought it actually tied in really well with the prayer station at 11, um, where we were considering, you know, at 11 o'clock we have an experiential prayer station. That's kind of one of the ways we respond to the message. And throughout Lent we're doing, um, we're focusing on this embodied God and how do we become God's body, God's hands and feet. And yesterday was um, head, right? So what are what are the thought patterns that really prevent us from doing what we need to, right? To flourish or thrive or live in the way God might want us to. But I, it's a it's an individual and a collective I think question of ways in which we are, we get in our own way, and what does it mean to realize that you're? It's you. It's not external. Now, what are you thinking about that? Yeah, I, I that resonates with me. Um, I also think it's it it's helpful to think about that in the in the context of um, of Israel and Judah, and you know the the kind of the time stamp of Psalm 23, that this is a nation that could never really pull it together because it was, it was fighting with itself all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that that does a good job of, of, of forcing us to take a hard look at our own places where, uh, we're, where we are combating, we are being, being combative with ourselves um, and not coming to a place where we actually get to rest and enjoy the presence of God and the presence of others at this table and even the presence of ourselves at the table yeah I, I like thinking about what would hospitality look like if it's not just for other people if it's not a function that we perform uh, rather uh, who we are innately to ourselves and to others um, I think that's a, a really interesting way to kind of think about it and these are um, very extended metaphors, right? So they can kind of <laughs> it can get kind of hard to talk about them, but um, I think that's a really interesting Lenten practice. All right. Well, it made me think about um, how much our architecture has changed. Um, like we used to have formal dining rooms, and that's not the case so much anymore all of that space is being opened up because the preparation of the table is as important as being at the table Mm -hmm. so i think that that's that's instructive and we tend to divide ourselves in you know that place where the work that we do to to make things happen that's very private and nobody else should see it right (laughs) then we have um you know, then we go into the dining room where we can, we can be the shiny, uh, the shiny us for others or for our best selves. Yeah, I was thinking about it a little bit because we, you know, we live in a 1940s colonial, so we don't, we don't have a formal dining room, but we have a dining room. It's where all the dining happens, so it's a casual dining room. <laughs> we don't have another set apart space in our kitchen. 
and I was thinking about what hospitality kind of uh, would look like or um, I don't know, just like how much I enjoy and experience more when, you know, me and the kids kind of figure out how to how to set things up and being okay with the fact that it's it's not going to be shiny, particularly when I have uh, littles helping me or just with me. But it feels kind of nice to come together around a meal, not not as a performance because other guests are coming to the house, but because we we do that preparation for the time we get to spend together, which is albeit very short. And we eat very quickly, and uh, little bodies can only stay at the table for so long. Um, but we're getting there. We still have the uh, formal dining space, even though it's a you know '80s house. Um, but you know, it, there's always other stuff on that table until company is coming over. <laughs> company, um, and then we have a little table in the in the in the kitchen area, um, little dinette area, but yeah, it's, it's just a breakfast it's, nook. It, well, yeah, it's even a little bigger than a bro- breakfast nook. Um, it's a weird use of space, but, but I think how, how we use space is often telling about, about us mm-hmm. and, uh, says something about how we're, we use our physical space as well. But, um, anyway, so you talked about yourself, in the lessons that uh, I've been uh, mildly involved in, uh, in as you're learning to drive a uh, a manual transmission automobile, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, what did that have to do with anything? <laughs> you're you're salty today. <laughs> Just what were you doing? Um, well, here's what I was trying to do, and perhaps it was unsuccessful. Um, I, I might be hearing that presently, but well, what I tried to do. <laughs> You are um, not hearing that. I'm just yanking your chains because I can. Is um, uh, talk about how presence and worry, I think, are really uh, at conflict, at odds with one another. And uh, for me, when I was thinking about what's what's a metaphor for worry, uh, the driving came pretty quickly because the thing I'm struggling most with is giving some, giving the vehicle energy and fuel when it just can't, it's going is unavailable. There is no path forward. And that reminds me a lot of worry in myself, giving energy and attention and fuel to something that's just not, not pertinent, not a part of reality. Um, and I, I mentioned sometimes, because I have an anxious brain, I do have to do a little like, you know, spinning before I can center. But worry is a little bit different, I think. Mm-hmm. This kind of preoccupation around things I just have literally no control over. And it takes me away from the things I do have control over. So that was my that was my hope. That's what I was trying to do with talking about yeah. myself. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing, right? Um, it's impossible until until it comes together, until it clicks. And I mean, you've got what you you've got everything you need to make the car go. Right. And I, to, to stick except with, the coordination. To stick, yeah. Well, to stick with the, well, and, and you'll get that. Right? God willing. Well, yeah. God willing. But I mean, it's, 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 it feels uh, instructive for us as, as human beings because we often don't believe that we've got what we need to do 
what is set before us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and how often do we worry about it instead of just doing it? Yeah. Or, I, or deciding it, it, need, it doesn't need to be done. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, um, I didn't get into this, but I didn't. My anxiety around stick is that I'm not used to doing things that I'm just patently bad at. Um, sometimes I like I go in with that knowledge and I'm like, it's okay. I can be goofy me and like, it's fine that I'm crappy at this. Like I own that. But driving is not one you can really do that with. <laughs> It's hard. It's hard to conce- it's hard to conceal at the very least. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not safe. Um, and yeah, so that it's it's vulnerable for me to participate uh, in in something that I'm just objectively bad at, with the hopes that you have you have to be bad before you get better. I haven't had that experience in a while, so that's another good practice is that I could, I can need to stop spinning out and just freaking do it and be bad at it. Just do it poorly. Yeah. It's not, it's not one of those things that is inherently intuitive. Um, for me, definitely not. I, I, think, I, I think for most people it's not like, because most of us started on a, on an automatic and on an automatic you're taught to keep your left foot off on the mm-hmm. side and do everything with your right. Half the time I had it up near the window. <laughs> My left foot was <laughs> gone and far away and now I have to do things with it. It's Ugh, true. A lot of things. Many things. 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 One one thing. <laughs> one thing frequently. Clutch. Clutch. <laughs> Clutch, Clutch. Frequently. Right foot is still the gas and the brake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you have been um you have been a very patient teacher. So thank you. You're you're welcome, and it, it's getting there. It's getting there. <laughs> I will say more than anything, maybe I've talked about. I had more advice from the congregation about how to drive stick than anything I've ever spoken about, and I was I was hoping to make connections with people too because, um, yeah, folks have interesting experiences with it. Yeah, and I had lots of people talk to me about how to better teach you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm I'm a parent. I'm kind of a difficult student because I've already told you like here I yeah, things you can and cannot say. <laughs> like I need you to say left foot, not clutch, because my brain doesn't get clutch. I think of snake eggs, and I don't know why my brain does that, but you know I'm getting there. You know, and and justifiably, you know, I don't need to raise my voice. <laughs> but talk about counterintuitive, holy mackerel. <laughs> Yeah, if you want insight into mine and Barry's partnership, there was a time where, and like we all do this, where like I'm trying to figure out what to do and I'm not super coordinated, but um, I'm not processing what Barry's saying. So instead, he's just getting louder next to me saying the same thing. And I had to think and like, well, it's not, I can hear, but I just don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) It's not a hearing issue. (laughs) So we've worked out, you know, we'll go to our therapist and get some things sorted (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be fine for, um, Barry also mentioned I probably should have named what the festival, what homiletics were. I was really just going for something incredibly nerdy that I didn't know that <laughs> anyone, I assumed you'd think that. But homiletics is preaching, so it's a festival of uh, all things about the craft of preaching. I've never been, Barry's been many times, but I'm, I'm really excited um, because it's, Preaching is a thing that kind of grows with you in a congregation, and it's it's a weird, it's a weird thing we do. We have a public presentation, you know, each week, that is some mix of scripture, the spirit, and like 
us being communicators, it's a very humbling um, undertaking, right? Yeah. And yeah, honing that craft is something that um, I I I don't know that I I don't know that we should probably ever stop, you know, until you retire. Well, even then, you know, I mean, the we don't have many contexts in society. You know, maybe TED Talk, the emergence of TED Talk has become yeah. something like that in a in mm-hmm. a uh, secular fashion. Except that even most TED Talks don't have the the push to uh, to do something. Like this is this is this is a particular kind of speech that calls you to. Uh, to do something. So. Yeah, to minimally examine. Yeah. Right? Maximally, we'll have a thing we want you yeah. to focus on for the week. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I tend to do that more because I'm a dork. And I, I want, like, I'm going through my list of, like, here's my line. <laughs> yeah. And now make sure you do this. Yeah. And, and as you're finishing up, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to do that. Um, I initially thought I would be driving a little bit less, but Barry has informed me I, w- I will definitely be driving on our little carpool. So I'll keep you all apprised. <laughs> well, you know, really, the easy, once you get on the highway, it's easy. Okay. You could take your foot off the clutch. You could take your foot off Have the Have I brake. been on the highway yet? No. I don't think, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we barely made Girl, it. Girl, you barely made it through the Dairy Queen <laughs> drive-thru. Barely, barely made it out of the drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no, we have to we have to practice on the hills. Okay, yep. It'll it'll come. And not just for you, but for me and for everybody who's listening, you know, whatever it is, it will it will emerge. <laughs> Julian of Norwich over here. Um It's <laughs> my new nickname. <laughs> well, next week, you're preaching. That's the plan. That is the plan. So we'll be in Lent week three. Yeah. The theme is tuning out and tuning in. The text is from Luke where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus Mm -hmm. and Martha is prattling through the supper and doesn't particularly like having to do that. And we've already had some interesting conversations about what this text means. So stand by. Yeah, Barry's being generous. I went on a rant earlier, so I'm excited. <laughs> I am excited to be in further conversation about it. I sense that you're going to be behind me in your chair throwing things at me while I'm preaching. <laughs> Why would it be any different from any other Sunday? Well. <laughs> on that note. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>